Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Starachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. sisters and welcome to our show. If you have read our blogs or listened to our podcasts or attended one of our workshops, then you know that self-compassion, that is treating yourself with the same respect and kindness that you would a dear friend, is a huge part of our anxiety management plan. Our guest today, Dr. Kristen Neff, is an expert in self-compassion. In fact, She conducted the very first empirical studies on self-compassion 20 years ago and has been the go-to voice in the field ever since. Mags and I have been lucky enough to train with Dr. Neff, who is currently a professor at the University of Texas in Austin, not once, but twice in the last two years. So we are huge fans, not only of her work, but also of her devotion to making this world a kinder, more compassionate place. Her newest book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive is a must-read for all Anxiety Sisters, and we are so grateful that she has made some time to chat with us today. Hi, Kristen. Welcome. Hi. Thank you both so much. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. We are really happy because we know how busy you are, so we feel like we we snagged you. (laughs) Yes, we snagged you. I just want to say before we get started that I'm a social worker. I went to social work school, been in therapy for years, all sorts of stuff. And out of everything I have ever learned, self-compassion has been the most helpful in my life in terms of changing the way I experience myself and the world around me and really empowering me to make change in ways that I felt very stuck before. So I just want to thank you because I think self-compassion has been the most powerful tool I have ever learned. Yes. We were, we, when we trained with you uh, yeah. back in Kripalu, we, that was a, an altering weekend for us that changed our lives profoundly. Well, but, thanks self-compassion. I'm just the messenger. I'm, you know what I mean? It, like self-compassion, it, it's its own thing. It's your, it's your relationship with yourself that, you know, it comes from you. So Thank you. Well, for those (laughs) listeners who don't know much about self-compassion, although we do talk about it quite a lot, who just need a refresher, can you give us a quick primer? Yes. So so the easy way to think about it is the way you defined it, treating yourself with the same respect and support you'd show to a friend. But because I do research on it, I have a more complex theoretical model, which enabled me to measure the construct. So basically, I propose that self-compassion has three main components. So the one is what you mentioned, the kindness, the care, the concern, the support. But there's also two other elements that are really important to make this a stable and healthy mindset. Uh, What is mindfulness, right? So you've probably talked a lot about mindfulness on your show. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is everywhere. But mindfulness is the ability to be present with what's happening as it's happening without trying to like shove it away or resist it. And if compassion is, you know, concerned with the alleviation of suffering, which is one definition of it, 
you have to be willing to acknowledge that you're struggling in order to give yourself compassion, right? If you're just like stiff upper lipping it, or you're just lo- or you're lost in the drama of what's happening, you have no perspective from which to step outside of yourself and treat yourself with the same kindness you'd show a friend. So mindfulness is, is really foundational to self-compassion. And you really always have to start with mindfulness first. And then you can be kind to yourself, but but the way you're kind to yourself matters. So, you know, a narcissist might be really kind to themselves and that's not self-compassion or someone who's like wallowing in self-pity may think they're being kind to themselves. So what makes it self-compassion as opposed to these other similar states is a sense of common humanity, right? Or other people. If you actually look at the Latin, passion means to suffer, come means with. So there's an inherent connectedness in compassion that's not there in pity, for instance. And so when we have self-compassion, it's not like poor me, or it's not like just me. It's actually not about me at all. It's just saying, hey, we all, we're all imperfect. We all struggle. I deserve kindness just like everyone else does. And that makes a really big difference. Mm. Yeah, the community piece of it is what really resonates for, for me and Mags, especially since we have this really huge community now that um, yes. it's amazing what thinking yes. about people beyond yourself can do in terms of improving your own life and mental health. Yeah, that's well, right. And not, and not instead of, it's not like just think of others. It's yeah. like, and yourself, this, the, the inclusiveness is so important. Well, I think it's also that idea that you are not alone in this suffering because I think that is the thing that Abby and I get most in our community, which is, I thought this was just me. Yes. I thought this weird symptom or this weird thing I do, or this agoraphobia or whatever else I'm dealing with a panic attack. I thought I was the only one. And I think the beautiful thing about self-compassion and that common humanity is realizing that while you are a unique person, your anxiety is not a unique experience that so many other people are coping. It's very reassuring. Yes. Yeah. And also just remembering that there's nothing wrong with you for having challenges. This is a human condition. Like whoever said, you know, if, when you're being born into this world, that life is going to be perfect. That's not what it means to be human. Everyone has challenges. Some have more challenges than others. Absolutely. It's not like absolutely. it's all the same, but everyone has some form of challenge. And at the very least, we're all going to get old and sick and die. That's guaranteed, you know, right? So nothing's, nothing's wrong. That's the thing. We fall into the trap of thinking something has gone wrong. Well, actually, you know, that's, that's to be, it's to be expected to have challenges. It's part of life. Right. It's part of why we use mindfulness so much, too, because a lot of our philosophy on anxiety is about acceptance. Yes. Accepting our anxiety and accepting that it's all part of the human experience. That's right. It comes and it goes just like every other emotion, just like joy, just like happiness, just like sadness or grief. You know, all of these things come and go. And so one of the things we really talk about is not fighting against it. Right. That, and you really need that mindfulness piece, very, very present yes. to do that kind of work. You often conceptualize self-compassion in terms of yin and yang. Ah. And I think that's yeah. such a great way to talk, to, to lead into fierce self-compassion for people who, you know, that will be a really good visual, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, th- there's two aspects of self-compassion. You could call it yin and yang. Lately, I'm, I, tr- I tend to call it um, like tender self-compassion and fierce self-compassion. So there's really two sides of self-compassion. One comes from acceptance, right? Acceptance of anxiety, acceptance of our imperfection, acceptance of the fact that life is imperfect, right? Very, very key that we can accept ourselves as we are. We don't need to improve in order to be worthy of love. Um, and so the, the the tender side or yin side of self-compassion is more of a gentle nurturing energy, right? This is almost like you might say a mother or a, a parent toward their newborn child. That child could be screaming their head off. You know, we still love that child. And it's about soothing and comforting and accepting. But that's not the only aspect of self-compassion because if compassion is the concern with the alleviation of suffering, sometimes to help, we need to actually do something, right? It's not that, it's not that we aren't acceptable as we are, but maybe some of our behaviors could use a little work or maybe our situation isn't working out so well, or maybe we're tr- being treated unfairly at work and we need to speak up. Right. So so taking action to help ourselves is also a key part of self-compassion. This is more the young energy, which is, you know, kind of doing things action oriented. It's more powerful. It's a more agentic part of um, really um, approaching life. And I, I like to call this fierce mama bear self-compassion because it's also mm-hmm. ironically a parental energy. It's also a female energy, even though, of course, everyone has an inner mama bear, but that fierce rising up to say, no, you can't harm me, or maybe to yourself, no, you can't bully me, or no, this behavior isn't helping, or no, the situation is not good, right? So, so all those things, protecting ourselves, meeting our needs, motivating change. I mean, the, the number one block to self-compassion is people think it means you aren't going to be motivated to change anything. That's right. not the case. It's right. Like you don't like you don't like your kid who you love like just skip school eat candy all day. I mean, yeah, you want them to be well, but the motivation doesn't come from like you better do it or else you're unacceptable. It comes from hey, I care about you and I want you to be well. Uh, and it's like yeah. getting, I like getting on because we know the symbol is balance. Balance. Yes. Capital B. We always need both. That's that's essential. We find it really helpful. Again, bringing it back to anxiety in that when we're very, very anxious in the fight, flight, or freeze, our frontal lobe, you know, our our prefrontal cortex is really not able to think solution-wise or rationally. We're just, we're acting on impulse. So one of the things we say about self-compassion is that if you spend a little time in the soothing mode, you can get to the fierce mode or the action-oriented mode, because you actually allow your prefrontal cortex to activate, to come into play. That's right. And it's interesting because self-criticism actually activates the fight, flight, or freeze response. So people think they're helping themselves, but they're actually just getting themselves all worked up and making it harder to make the changes they needed because they can't see as clearly because they're so activated. Right, because um, it, it's like basically having someone yell at you. Exactly. You, and even if it's yourself, puts you into yeah. fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And so that was very, very important for me to learn because yeah. I think my internal dialogue was often about being harder on myself. Because I think a lot of people think when we say self-compassion, it is about like letting ourselves off the hook, quote yeah. unquote. 
Mm-hmm. And your research has shown just the opposite. So we were right. wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, so the research shows very clearly, well, first of all, um, it, it um, helps you take responsibility for things because when it's mm-hmm. safe to admit you've messed up, you're more likely to admit you've messed up. You're more likely to apologize and try to repair things. Um, it leads to more effective motivation, right? So yes, yelling at yourself, it kind of works, but it has all these downsides. Like it makes you anxious, right? It, makes, it has, creates mm-hmm. performance anxiety. It, it um, creates fear of failure, at least a procrastination. So self-compassion is a more effective motivator because, you know, you can learn from your failures. You can try again. You can keep trying and have the grit to stay trying, you know, to stay um, in the game even when things get really hard. Another, another misconception is that people think self-compassion is weak. Mm. I have to say there's some gender bias in this because compassion is a female thing. I think that's why like there's only about 15% of any audience that I teach are men because, oh, that's a female thing and females have lost power in society. Well, is that is self-compassion weak? There's actually a lot of research with combat veterans, you know, from Iraq and Afghanistan showing that soldiers who are more self-compassionate and supportive with the trauma they've experienced um, they're more able to function in daily life. They're less likely to turn to drugs or alcohol or to contemplate suicide as a way out of their pain. And they're less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome. So basically, you name it, if things are really difficult, being an ally, having your own back is going to make you stronger and more capable than cutting yourself down and shaming yourself. And it's it, it's so obvious once you put it that way. And yet our society yes. tell us that that's a good thing. <laughs> well, I... I love that piece of research. It was in one of your books where students who didn't do well on a test and had more self-compassion for themselves um, studied more for the next test. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. As opposed to those students who were just given a self-esteem boost, you know, oh, don't worry, you failed. You're smart. And it's like, oh, I don't have to worry about it. Or people who weren't told anything. So in other words, they beat themselves up. Yeah. So it actually... Self-compassion enables us to learn. It actually, mm-hmm. there's a lot of research that shows it leads to what's called a, um, a, a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. You know, the idea right. that you can change, that you can learn. And it's, yes. it's not about how you look to others. It's you want to learn because for its own sake, because you're, it helps you in some way. So it's just, a, it's a lot more effective. Um, that's why I'm so passionate about it because it's like, hey, you guys, you got a superpower in your back pocket. You don't even know it's there. Take it out of your pack, back pocket, for goodness sake. <laughs> yes. You know? You uh, yes. you brought up gender a few times and and yeah. that definitely was something that when Mags and I read your book, your latest book, it, it occurred. Yeah. It felt like you wrote that book for women. Oh, well, I did. It's in and the title. Like, and I felt like you yeah. wrote it. Yeah, and it felt like you wrote it for women at a particular time. Oh, yeah. Well, but so the Me Too movement was part of what personally spurred me. I, I had an uh, experience really difficult with someone who was like a mini Harvey Weinstein. And so many people, I mean, it just, just recently in the news, you know, constantly these, these stories of sexual harassment. And really that stems from the disempowerment of women in society mm-hmm. and men asserting their power through, it could be sexual harassment, but all, all other ways. I mean, inequality is still with us. And part of the reason it's there, well, I mean, other than the fact that it's just like greediness and patriarchy and all that, but yes. one thing that, there's a lot of reasons it's there. But part of what's feeding into it is gender role socialization, 
which raises men to be fierce, but not tender and raises women to be tender, but not fierce. Right. Right. So in the past, if women, you know, if men acted that way, women were supposed to, well, just, you know, sweep it under the rug to let men be men. We aren't supposed to rock the boat. We certainly aren't supposed to get angry. Oh, my goodness. Women, and when they're angry, they're ugly. We don't like angry women. <laughs> you know, it also co- helps contribute to the glass ceiling because people dislike powerful, competent women even though you have to be powerful and competent to lead a big company because they assume if she's competent and powerful, she's not nurturing. Like she's young and not in, and we don't like that. So, and and by the way, it also harms men. I mean, it it gives them money and resources. So that's might say a good thing, but it harms men emotionally. Men aren't allowed to be sensitive and they really, they really suffer because of that emotionally. So it harms everyone. And the big thesis of my book, and I wrote it for women just because the way we're off balance is different. And it would have been too complicated to say for women, it works this way. And for men, it works that way. Right. But the bottom line is balance, right? Everyone needs balance. Everyone needs to say, what do I need right now to be whole and authentic? And then that's just going to depend on the situation, what you need. I like to mm. think about the yin yang metaphor. It's yeah. you know, men sh- should be, it should be perfectly okay for men to express the yin. Yes. It should be perfectly okay for women to express the yang. Yes. So that to me, it, it would be imbalanced if we could embrace our mama bear. Yes. They could em- embrace their softness. Their, their softness. Their- yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 When you start it's, breaking it's, it down, I mean, there's a lot of talk about, you know, um, well, gender identity and how people with a, you know, maybe a transgender identity that they're, they're oppressed, which they definitely are. But in, in many ways, we're all oppressed. I mean, everyone, because we aren't allowed to be our true authentic selves, you know, these, these rigid gender roles, I think, and socialization and just really oppresses everyone. With an angry woman, we get called, you know, a bitch. Yeah, that's you right. Know, like if, uh, a, if a woman stands up for herself, then suddenly she loses her femininity and she, yeah. you know, loses what men celebrate and uplift her for. And the That's truth right. is that the same is true for men the other way. And that like my husband, for example, he's a really nurturing man. Uh-huh. And, but he always tells people, you know, he's like, yeah, he's like, I have a mangina. Because that, you know, like he's sort of in a, that's his way of sort of excusing yeah. what he shouldn't have to excuse. The fact that he can embrace that nurturing part of himself. Exactly. And do you remember like Amy Klobuchar when she ran for president? It's like, oh, please don't hate me because I'm a fierce, powerful woman, but I need to be to be president. But please don't hate right. me. It's, it's all so messed up. And also, we have to accept that some people may like us a little bit less if we embrace our fierceness. You know, the people who are good friends, they'll love us for it. But the people who just want us to meet their needs and like, you know, do them favors, they may like us a little bit less. And but that's the gift of self-compassion is you're less dependent on other people liking you or approving on you to be happy. I mean, yeah, you still have to keep your job and there are constraints. And I'm not saying just screw the world. You know, we need to take into consideration. But when our worth isn't contingent on other people liking us, that's such Mm. freedom, such freedom. Mm. No, you talk in your book about your own evolution. Yeah. From where you started when you wrote your first book, Self-Compassion. Yeah, that was really addressing more of the yin or the more tender. More, more yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You talk in your book about how you know your mama bear came out fiercely with your son. 
Yeah. And it comes out, it also comes out with my son. It also comes out in academia. So if anyone like says something like about my theory, you know, and I think they're wrong, I'll let them know it. (laughs) It's kind of a cutthroat world, but you know, and, and for years, it's funny because it's acceptable for me to be mom and bear with my son. People, okay, a mother can be fierce to protect your son, but to protect your work. I don't know about that. So I got called the B word a lot as well. And I used to, and so a lot of the book is my struggle with reactive anger. I'm just wired to where, you know, I, I go pretty quickly, even after all my years of meditation practice and mindfulness and self-compassion practice, it still happens. And I thought it was something I had to work with and accept and have compassion for. And then I got the insight, well, wait a second, that mama bear, that's my power source. I probably would not have accomplished all I've accomplished in my life and been so driven to like bring self-compassion to the world without that fierce energy. This is something I should celebrate, not be, you know, not have to forgive or have compassion for. And so that's really what was my personal pathway. And then I recognized it's not just me, it's all women. Women are not allowed to really right. express the side of themselves and that harms us. But that's part of this thing of common humanity. Women need to band together. The reason the yes. Me Too movement is powerful is because we, we are all saying it's not okay, right? It's yes. hard for one individual isolated to speak up because there may be consequences. But if enough of us do, and as you know, if women just together say, hey, we aren't going to swallow it anymore. We're going to speak up and it's not okay for us to have to just sweep it under the rug. Mags and I talk about all the time that, you know, you have to be able to be your authentic self in order to experience true mental health. You can't be this fragmented person that's swallowing important feelings, anger, anxiety, whatever. Any of us are experiencing all this shame, which we manufacture ourselves in response to some of these culturally prescribed roles that we can't live up to. Yes. So, so it ends up being a bigger discussion. And, and in our book, Mags and I talk a lot about what are, what are the ramifications of living in our current culture? Yes. Right? The quick fix culture, the patriarchy, all that, it does affect our mental health. And that just, we, one of our theses is that it, you know, just being a woman in this current culture is in and of itself anxiety provoking. It is. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, we, we aren't supposed to show the fierceness. We have to temper it. We have to think about when's the right way to show it and who's the right person to show it to. And we're supposed to be attractive, but not too sexy. And all these incredibly impossible standards that women are supposed to meet. And I also talk in my book about the whole thing of relationships, you know, so I'm a, I'm, you know, middle-aged woman and I'm not currently in a relationship and men, you know, men are single as well. And yes, they may want to be in a relationship, but they don't face the sense of not somehow counting unless they're in a relationship. Whereas women do, that's another huge pressure. Yes. You know, and there's no, there's no male counterpart for the old maid. Exactly. Exactly. Just maybe a a great, you know, a nice bachelor or something like that. Right. It's like a sexy George Clooney. That's right. Unavailable bachelor versus an old spinster. That's right. That's right. And so really, I mean, that's been my journey just to really, you know, I work, I had to work on it very explicitly. I am not going to let my happiness depend on being in a relationship. I have so many other wonderful, amazing things about my life. Would I like a relationship? 
sure, it'd be great if it happens. I'm really open to it. But in no way am I dependent on it for my happiness. And again, that is real freedom. And it's self-compassion practice that allowed me to get to that place. Going back to anxiety, one of the things about our community that we talk about all the time is that ability to say like, yes, brain health affects me. You know, yes, yes, I struggle. And there is that empowerment of not making it silent anymore. And that is about us all doing it together. I mean, that is part of the Anxiety Sisters mission is that we don't have to pretend this doesn't exist anymore. We can talk about struggle and we're not weak for doing that. We're actually strong for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. For our listeners who are wondering wondering what self-compassion sounds like. Right. When Mags and I trained with Dr. Neff the first time, that we we learned she she helped us learn how yeah. to find our own ways of being compassionate with ourselves. She taught us how to touch ourselves compassionately, yeah, um, and how to talk to ourselves compassionately. And it's different for everyone. Some people, you know, like some people love to to wrap themselves in the, in their own hug. That makes me feel claustrophobic. I don't do that, but I do uh-huh. like to stroke my arm gently. So uh-huh. you know, I just want to make this really tangible for people that self compassion. It's in your voice. It's in mm-hmm. saying to yourself. This is really hard. I'm feeling bad and that's okay. Yeah. And, so, and, and there's also, the, again, the fierce and the tender form of it. So sometimes tender is, mm-hmm. this really hurts. I'm, so I might put my hand on my heart and, you know, it's okay, Kristen. This is really hard. You know, I, I feel for you and you're able to pass. And, you know, it's nothing you've done wrong or you're only human. Or sometimes I, it, I have triggered, I've done something which maybe was a mistake and it triggered them. It's okay, everyone makes mistakes, you know, so it's more of a tender softness. But other times, so I had a thing in my in my work where they deny me promotion to full professor. Then it was more that fierce self-compassion, like, hey, this isn't right. You know, I'm gonna do mm-hmm. what it takes. I'm gonna fight this. I'm gonna, I got my own back. You go out and kick some butt. Then. I really I love that yes. exercise in your book where you have everyone stand yeah. up like you're a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> A great because it, think about it. You, it's hard to shrink away from yourself when you bring your when you puff up your chest and bring your yeah, shoulders, back. shoulders back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, body posture is very important. Yeah, it communicates to your brain. It tells it does. you. Yes, if you, you know that the whole thing about faking it till you make it. It's just because yeah. our brains they they follow what we do. It's like if your That's body right. stands a certain way, the brain's like, oh, okay, I'm tough. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, the last thing that we wanted to ask you is that you you've written about the journey to becoming a whole person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you called it journey to wholeness. I think that was your exact quote. Would you just share with our audience what that means? Because I, I found that incredibly beautiful and powerful. Really, wholeness comes from embracing all sides of ourselves, right? So the fear side and the tender side, but even more than that, like the anxious side and the calm mm-hmm. side, the together mm-hmm. side and the side that's an absolute basket case mess, right? Mm-hmm. That's what becoming whole is and, and embracing the whole catastrophe um, really with loving arms, but also not just the catastrophe, but also our strengths. That's also part of it is can we embrace yes. what's good about ourselves as well? What, what works as opposed to just what doesn't work. Yeah, I think a lot of us women have trouble with that. Yes, exactly. That's right. And and so just it's about consciously uh, accepting, encouraging, uh, motivating, 
challenging sometimes, supporting all different parts of ourselves. And as much as we can, getting to this place of balance. And really the the best way to get to this place of balance is just asking, what do I need? How many of us actually pause and say, what do I really need right now to be healthy and well? No one can tell you from the outside what that looks like. Self-compassion is always about reminding yourself to ask yourself what you need and giving yourself permission to meet your own needs. And that's especially so hard for women who are taught to always meet others' needs and who are taught it selfish to meet their own needs. So we really have to kind of deprogram ourselves out of those messages and tell ourselves, I deserve to meet my needs. And the more I do meet my needs, the more resources I'll have to meet the needs of others. People will say to us, but I don't know what I need. One of the things I'll say is it's a practice like anything else. So you get better at it the more you practice it. You do. None of this is like, oh, tomorrow I'll have full self-compassion. And I'll, you know, it's really something to practice. I've made mistakes in what I thought I needed, but then I I start to learn more. Oh, that wasn't that. I didn't really need that. That's right. That. And it's not like a destination. It's really a process. Right. It's not as hard as you might think to be self-compassionate. Even if right. you, know, you weren't lucky enough to have warm, supportive parents and all those things which right. might make it na- a little more natural for you, it is a learnable skill and it's not rocket science. That's the really good news. Right. Just doing that first step of accepting and of saying it's okay. You know, it's okay to feel like this. I'm not the only one. Yes. Wonderful. We have been talking today with Dr. Kristen Neff, author of Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. This book is a fantastic read. It will make you feel strong just to read the book. I'm telling you, I was feeling all powerful after chapter three. (laughs) (laughs) And we just want to thank you, Kristen, for, for joining us on the show. We've been trying to get you for a long time. So we are thrilled that we finally made that happen. And we just are so grateful to you for all of the work you've done in this field and introducing it to every possible way of life, educators, business, everywhere. You're just really, you're really making the world a better place. And we so appreciate that. Oh, thank you. And also I'm really grateful for you too, for bringing self-compassion to so many people who struggle with anxiety. It's really important work. So we have an exciting announcement. Mags and I have written a book. Yes, the Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide is out now in stores and wherever you buy your books. You can get it at Target, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, or any of your favorite independent booksellers, as well as online. And if you purchase the book before October 1st, you can let us know and we will send you a free meditation that we recorded specifically for anxiety. So once again, the book is the Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide, and you can get that wherever you buy books. So thanks so much for joining us, everyone. And remember, anxiety sisters don't don't go alone. alone. Yeah, that. But they do say that alone. I think anxiety sisters say, "Don't go it alone." Alone. We clearly can't say it together. Not when we're not together. When we're not together. When we're together, we can say it together. When we're not together, we say it apart. Okay. You've been listening to the Spin Cycle. An Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.